Hi, this is Josiah Bancroft, the author of the Books of Babel series, and you're listening to the Grim Tidings Podcast. It's the Grim Tidings Podcast. I'm Rob Matheny. And I'm Philip Overby. Today's guest started writing novels at the young age of 12, and since then he's pursued other creative endeavors such as music, poetry, art, and more. In 2013, he self-published Sendlin Ascends, book one of the Books of Babel series, followed up two years later by the sequel Arm of the Sphinx. Since then, the series has garnered attention and praise as one of the best self-published fantasy series around. Online at www.thebooksofbabel.com or on Twitter at thebooksofbabel. And Skyping in today from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, the Grim Tidings podcast proudly welcomes Josiah Boncroft to the show. Hello. Welcome. Did I say your name right? It's Bancroft, but like, I'm not really picky. <laughs> Bancroft. Bancroft. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we're glad to get you uh, on today's show. We're jazzed to talk to somebody who's found success self-publishing. Also, I think uh, we're going to touch a bit on poetry today, which is a topic I don't think we've ever really covered on the show before. A little background information that Phil actually has a degree in poetry that I don't think even no. listeners uh, knew about. So we'll touch on that a little bit. Uh, yeah. But resoundingly, I think readers have been impressed with your poetic prose. And overall, people are just somewhat blown away by how good these books are. So for those just hearing about the Books of Babel series, tell us a little bit about the series and why you think listeners should consider picking up a copy of the first two books? Sure. Um, the Books of Babel is about the uh, Tower of Babel, as it is imagined in a like alternate universe. Um, it is the most immense structure the world has ever seen, uh, 64 floors high, um, and each floor is about 100 feet. So it's, a, it's, a, it's as big as a mountain, and uh, it is filled with these diverse uh, ringdoms. Each level of the tower is a different culture, a different world. Um, which has kind of sprung up over the, the ages. Um, to this great monument of human endeavor, a mild-mannered uh, headmaster from a small parochial, uh, small village on the uh, sea uh, goes with his new wife on a honeymoon uh, that very quickly dissolves into disaster. Uh, as soon as he arrives at the tower, he loses his wife in the crowd. And so the, the story is really about him, this uh, sort of egotistical, unprepared uh, man searching for his wife through the tower. So you've got book one, Settling the Sins, book two, Arm of the Sphinx, and this is slated to be a four-book series. Is that correct? That's right. And whereabouts are you on uh, book three? I am about halfway through drafting it. Yeah, I would say about halfway through drafting it, about 250 pages. Uh, my problem is that I, I'm a slow writer, um, and I'm not going to release something that I don't believe in. So it takes me a while to get the, the book where I want it. Um, but once I do, you know, I'll let people know. <laughs> do you have a network of beta readers or critique partners that help you out with that kind of stuff? You know, I used to, but not really anymore. My, my problem is I really don't like input and I don't like people to tell me like what I should do with my product. You know, so mm -hmm. like when I'm working on something, I'm pretty insulated. Um, late in the process, I'll give it to my wife, um, or, uh, a close friend or two, but like, I, I've never used beta readers. Uh, mm. maybe I should, maybe that would, that would help, but you know, my, my process is pretty insular. And you have a pretty extravagant background in language and English, correct? E, well, you know, I mean, I, I don't know, <laughs> extravagant. <laughs> I've been talking my entire life. Uh, you know, I've been writing since I was a kid. So I, I, I certainly am 
I, I love language. I, you know, I love writing. I, I studied a lot of linguistics in college. Uh, I studied literature in grad school. Um, I, I really am a lover of the written word. Um, but I would not say that I'm a great scholar. You know, uh, my talent is not for remembering names and quoting poems. My talent is like just sort of for um, themes and tropes and that sort of stuff. And could you tell us a little bit about the quest for Mortongus? The quest for Mortongus. <laughs> the quest for Mortongus was the first uh, fantasy novel I wrote when I was, I guess, oh, started at 12. Uh, and that began uh, because I was bored one summer afternoon. Uh, I was hanging out with my best friend, Ian. We went to the video store to check out Mega Man 3 on the NES, <laughs> which we all know is a great game. Yeah. It was out. It was not in. No. And since the game was not in, we had this moment of crisis. You know, what are we going to do with our afternoon? And uh, we decided, well, you know, we recently read The Hobbit. That was pretty cool. Why don't we write a fantasy book? Uh, so we sat down with some, you know, notebook paper and started pinning the quest for Murayangas. Uh, pretty quickly, uh, Ian got more interested in art, and he still does that today. And so he started drawing illustrations for the book, and I kept writing it. Um, I got myself a little Tascam uh, laptop computer from Radio Shack. And, uh, you know, this is like a calculator with a keyboard. It is a really basic piece of kit that runs on four AA batteries, you know, back in the day. Um, and I started writing the, the novel on that. Uh, turned out to be, I think, 250, no, yeah, maybe 500 pages. It was, it was huge. It was not good, but it was a lot of words. Um, <laughs> uh, and then I started, you know, writing sequels and et cetera. It was, it was, uh, yeah, it was where I, I guess, fell in love with the idea of writing fantasy novels. Yeah, that's what was your, when did you make the decision to be, to, to go the self-publishing route? Did, were you ever considering traditional publishing or has anyone reached out to you since you've gained more popularity uh, through self-publishing? Well, you know, if I had a time machine, I might go back and do it differently. I've certainly learned a lot about the self-publishing world uh, from doing. But I was coming from years and years of trying to engage the traditional publishing world. You know, I had sent I, I don't know, hundreds of letters to agents and publishers uh, and uh, entered more contests than I want to admit. I, I, I probably could have bought a car with how much money I wasted on contest entry fees. Um, so I did that for a long time. I got a little bit of um, attention for my poetry, but, you know, my novel ideas, my short fiction, none of that really took off. And so I got to the point where I was just frustrated with the fact that I, w I thought I was pretty good as a writer. I had you know, developed my, my chops. I had a story to tell, but there was this giant wall standing between me and the readers and then the traditional publishing houses. Um, and so I just decided to give you know, self-publishing a try. When I started, I had a very specific goal. I said, I want to sell 500 copies of Sin and the Sins. And, uh, you know, that's what my, my, humble goal was just to keep myself from thinking like I'm going to be the next you know, Andy Weir or whatever. It's been a learning process, you know, like people ask me like, what's the secret? I, I think it's a lot of like hard work, but more luck. I think the reason that finally it found an audience is just because I kept swinging and eventually got lucky. You know, I don't think that there's, uh, I, I know a lot of people who buy books on how to self publish. I know a lot of people who you know, ascribe to those sorts of, 
um, podcasts or those uh, websites that tell you how you can make a million dollars self-publishing. And I, I just don't find any of that stuff to be true. You know, it's, <laughs> it is a random uh, kind of capricious thing. Um, but I got lucky. Did you notice any huge spike in sales after Mark Lawrence started talking about your book? Because uh, I know the first I heard of it was when uh, he mentioned it on his website and was kind of raving about how great it was. Did you notice any kind of huge sudden interest in the story that you didn't notice before? Uh, absolutely. I mean, before uh, what happened to attract Mark Lawrence to the book was uh, Porno Kitsch wrote a review for it. And I think that's what turned Mark's head. When Pornokich wrote that review, I probably sold you know 10 or 15 books off of that review, which was wonderful. The rest of the year before that, uh, like from January to June, I'd sold one book. Well, I mean, just to give you a sense of like how little interest there was in the project. Uh, then Mark Lawrence sunk his teeth into it, um, started flogging it around. And yeah, I mean, suddenly I was selling much more than one, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which was... Uh, great. Um, and that sort of continued in least reasonably well since, um, you know, I'm just trying to take advantage of the attention that I have while I have it. And you were also part of the self-publishing fla- fantasy blog off as well. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What sort of, uh, what, what, and what was entailed with the blog off to get you involved with that? Uh, to be really honest, that was the last thing I did with the novel with, with Sinless Sins. Um, that was back in March of 2016. I, I'd been doing this for, uh, you know, three years, had no attention. I, I was done. I saw this uh, free contest, the self-publishing fancy blog off, and I was like, why not? So I threw the book at it, and then I started deleting my social media accounts and started, you know, moving on to the next thing. I just – I completely gave up on the project. <laughs> um, and so – I didn't know anything about it. I was not familiar with Mark Lawrence's work. It was just sort of like a last gasp. And if there's anybody out there who is struggling with self-publishing or writing, it's always when you give up that things seem to happen. <laughs> you know? uh, and so after the attention uh, from Mark Lawrence came, then I had to you know, get back on Facebook and Twitter and Reddit and start trying again. But uh, it, was, it was a very close thing. <laughs> I'm very close to giving up. So should I, <laughs> yeah. should I hang on just a little bit longer? Well, my, my suggestion is you, you can't fake out fate. You know, you, you really have to despair. You have to get uh, to the point okay. of wallowing misery and then good things happen sometimes. Right. I'm not quite there yet, but we'll keep going. a little bit, a little bit longer. I can suffer. <laughs> and what category would you put the books of Babel into? Is it fantasy? Is it steampunk? How do you kind of categorize the, the series? That is a hard question. Um, it's funny. When I first started writing it, I didn't know what steampunk was. I first started writing it because I was interested in like the old Victorian adventure novels of my youth. After writing poetry for 10 years and realizing that poetry was not going to be a feasible career for me, um, I kind of got disillusioned. And so I returned to my roots, uh, which were like, you know, H.G. Wells and Jules Verne and Poe and Mary Shelley, those sorts of like great Victorian novels, which are kind of hard to classify. You know, they have elements of adventure, they have elements of horror, they have like a little bit of fantasy. Um, and so I was really modeling my ideas off of that. And then I sh- sort of shared the idea with somebody and they said, Oh, this is steampunk. And I was like, it's what, what? 
You know, <laughs> I don't know what that is. And so then I went and started reading a couple of steampunk works. I read uh, The Difference Engine. I read uh, Queen Victoria's Bomb, which was one of the you know pr- supposedly proto steampunk books, and uh, China Meville. Uh, what's the station? Perdido Street Station. Thank you, thank you. I, I'm terrible with titles. <laughs> um, so I read those. And I was like, hey, this is fine. I can I can go with this. This is a fine genre. Um, yeah, it's steampunk. I'll start telling people that. Then I came to understand that steampunk was really also a fashion movement. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's it's not like grimdark in the sense that grimdark has uh, a lot of themes, tropes. Uh, it, it steampunk is more about the appearance, about the surface in many ways as a genre. Um, and there are a lot of people out there who think it's repetitive, formulaic, uh, boring. So I was told after I started to publish the books that steampunk was probably not the tag that I should use. Uh, and that's why I broadened it back out to fantasy, just to not put people off. And I, the people who love steampunk thought that my books weren't steampunky enough. And the people who hated steampunk were like, I don't see any steampunk in here. So it was, it was, <laughs> I couldn't please anyone. It's a weird book. It's just, you know, it's, it's, it's odd. Probably another uh, good reason for self-publishing it. I imagine you were getting rejected from uh, agents and publishers, et cetera, for the book being as unique as it is. Yeah, it doesn't really, especially at the time I was doing this, when I was working on the book, it, this was during like, we want Hunger Games. Give us YA. We want a strong uh, female protagonist who is beautiful but doesn't know it. Um, you know, and she is going to save the world with her bow and arrow or whatever. Like that was what people wanted, and I was nowhere near that. You know, my protagonist is prickly, um, uh, unlikable in some ways, especially at first. <laughs> I think people warm up to him, but he's complicated. He's flawed. He's he's not. Uh, when people think of a hero, he is the last thing you would think of. You know, he's not this chiseled jawed. Uh, steely-eyed murder machine. Uh, it's just not what he is. Um, so, yeah, you know, when I was sort of shopping it around, the suggestions were always very specific, like make him a stronger, more likable, authoritative character. And that would just change the entire spirit of the work. You know, uh, my preference is to have a character who has room to change, really change, grow, develop, and and become something else. That's interesting to me. You know, that's why I find interesting in the books that I read. If you start off as like somebody whose only flaw is like you just don't think you're pretty enough or you don't believe in yourself <laughs> enough, they're just, they're, I, I, there's nowhere to go, you know? So that's, that's it was, it, yeah, I knew that the, the, the traditional publishing world was not going to like this book. Um, yeah. So the, the third book is called Murder Machine. <laughs> <laughs> It is now. <laughs> ah, sweet. I, I was going to ask our obligatory grimdark question. Typically, we like to think about how the books can connect to the audience that we're projecting to. They're into darker kinds of fantasy. Would you say there are any dark themes in this story or this series that Sinlin runs into or any kind of elements that may appeal to people interested in grimdark? I think so. Uh, one of the my favorite reviews or responses I've gotten from readers is that they were enjoying the work, but they had to stop reading it because it was too upsetting. I'm like, ah, oh, yeah, right, that's good. You know, listen <laughs> <laughs> to the emotional response. I feel good about that. Um, the, the things that are like grim and dark about the tower is that it is completely 
uh, uh, disinterested or apathetic towards the human condition. It is it is a brutal place. It is mm. the place that that chews people up uh, as as doe-eyed and innocent as they are when they come in. Uh, they very quickly get uh, chewed up by the tower and turned into slaves or turned into uh, I don't want to say prostitutes, but like they really lose control of their destiny. Uh, I find that interesting. Like mm. that that sort of. Uh, view of the world as being indifferent to my success, survival, and happiness, something that, that rings true for me. Um, so the brutality of the tower is one thing. The violence in the book is spotty, but I do believe that it is, I would say, uh, strong when it does come around. Um, I personally find psychological and uh, dread, you know, psychological horror and dread to be more interesting than just getting like stabbed a bunch. Um, but, but that's, that's me. Um, there is some stabbing though. That's good. (laughs) We love stabbing. A couple of heads pop off. Like there's, there's some gouts of blood. Don't worry. All right. One thing that I found interesting at the beginning that kind of leads to thinking, oh shit, things are going to go wrong very quickly was the idea of the, uh, two women being roped together at the beginning. And he runs in these and then he starts seeing other people that are kind of roped together. And I I like that as kind of a teaser. It's like a small thing, but it's it shows like even before you get into the tower, how dangerous this area is or how how you can get lost so easily and everything shifting and changing and everything. And uh, I like how the language builds the tension, the, the poetic kind of style of language is very interesting you have a background in poetry. How how did you use your background in poetry to to write novels? I, I say, hmm, well, the short answer is when I first started. Man, there's no short answer. <laughs> 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 That's why I say right before I launch into it, like a ten minute tirade. <laughs> well, the short answer is um, the work was originally going to be a prose poem. That's that's how I started writing it. I had yeah. recently been reading um, Italo Calvino. Invisible cities, uh, and I thought this is this is what I want to do. Um, and I started writing it as a prose poem. That eventually turned into those snippets that start the chapters, those uh, epigraphs that start the chapters. Oh, okay. um, and I very quickly realized, like, I, I don't want to do this. Most of what poetry became for me in the uh, first book was something that I beat beat back, like I. I would write a sentence and be like, Oh, that sounds pretty. But I'm like, but is it necessary? No, it goes, you know? So I, I, I was trying to be pretty um, tame with the poetry, but the problem is I spent 10 years before that writing poetry. So I think that it's still in the sentences. It's still in sort of the lyric of the lines. It still shows up uh, in some of the, the sort of descriptive uh, images. I, I, I couldn't choke it out of every aspect, but when I, I started writing it, I was trying not to write poetry. I was trying to write, like an adventure novel, you know, something, mm. that, something that people would enjoy. And that's the problem with poetry. It really is. At the end of the day, most people don't enjoy it. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a brutal truth. I mean, like when I used to go around and talk to people and say, oh, I write poetry, that was the end of the conversation. You know? <laughs> that, nice. it, it is not, there's no follow-up to I write poetry. <laughs> but if you say I write fantasy novels, people are like, okay. And there may be a follow-up, you know, and that's, I was just so sick of the, the ghetto of poetry. It's it is a bleak place, man. Well, one thing one thing I noticed about poetry is uh, one of my professors told me one time. 
the only people that read poetry are other poets. And I remember thinking, that's pretty shitty to say to me. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's sort of true. Uh, you know, I, I taught poetry for years, like both the appreciation of uh, the you know, literary poets of the past and also the, the writing of poetry. And the first question I would ask when I started in class was, what was the last poem you read? Nobody knew. <laughs> what was the last book of poetry that you bought? Something they maybe get at school. You know, no one was reading. No one was buying. It's, I don't want to say it's a dead genre, but it certainly is a lonesome one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's one of those things that it can even be a gateway for a lot of people. I know I wrote poetry for years, and when I did my master's degree, I got a thesis my thesis was a book of poetry. So I have kind of a background in poetry also. I don't really talk about it on the show because I don't want to get, you know, people like, oh, you write poetry? You're fucking <laughs> <See>? lame. <laughs> yeah, you know exactly how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, I, would, I, would, I would more quickly be like, yeah, I have, I have hepatitis B. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> then I write poetry. Um, yeah. But it's one of those kind of secret skills that I think is good for writers to have that maybe they don't talk about that often or whatever but uh having that background in poetry does help a lot with constructing sentences and you know adding imagery you know rich imagery and i think you do that pretty well like uh and almost you know as i'm reading i'm just thinking wow this is the imagery is so descriptive and clear and so, some sometimes when when you read fantasy stuff it feels like it's being described too much you know, there's a desk and there's dust on it and the dust has been there for 20 years and there's a slight blah, 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 blah. But you don't really do that. It's, it's still lean, but it's also very imaginative, I, th I think. And I, I think that's for me is the most interesting thing about the writing itself is even it, it's not going into superfluous description. It's very like bang, 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 you know. Hitting you with image after image, the very clear. Well, that's 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 wonderful to hear. Like what I what I knew I did not want to do was Charles Dickens sort of style, and that's exactly like sort of that that mistaking an abundance of detail with description. Like mm -hmm. I don't want to hear about all, all the little knickknacks in the curio shop. Just move on. Um, and since I'm not getting paid by the word, <laughs> I can I can <laughs> just skip forward to the interesting stuff. Um, so I'm glad I'm glad that the images work for you. Did you find it any more kind of difficult to write the Arm of the Sphinx, the sequel to Send on the Sins, versus just writing the first book in the series? Uh, it was challenging because uh, the first book was met with such a resounding silence. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so you're sort of like, well, the guess this is for me. Um, but the, the good thing about writing for yourself is I, I, you can do anything you want. And so with the second book... I really wanted to see if I could write a, a book that was more invested in the characters that, that I had a, kind of accrued, um, describing their experience for the, this very strange world. Um, so, yeah, the second book for me was it, it blew open the concept. It became more perhaps episodic, um, which was fun. I think that, that some readers really respond better to the style of prose in the second book because it's a little a little i don't know <laughs> a, a little more direct uh, it's not mm. quite as uh, florid or doesn't have as many images i was trying to kind of find the the sweet spot um between storytelling and you know world creation 
Um, and, and so the, the second book took me twice as long to write as the first one. The third book is proving to take three times as long as to write as the first one. So I think there's this sort of increasing difficulty. I don't know what to chalk that up to. Maybe just getting old. Who knows? <laughs> Well, I think I've, I've heard that from other authors that we've had on the show where the further they get into the series, the more complex and complicated it gets to to tell the story. So that that does make sense. So do you find any particular challenges with uh, writing book three? Is it just slow going at this point? Yeah, I, I can't r- stop myself from rewriting and re-envisioning certain aspects of the tower. Like for me, I want this to be innovative, novel, new, strange and fun. Like I, it should be fun. And sometimes I'll write something. I'm like, well, that's very clever, but it's no fun. You know, <laughs> so I just, let's burn that down and try again. Um, so I think the first, the, the book is broken into three parts. And the first part I've rewritten, I, I don't even like to say, maybe in total, like the whole thing five times. Wow. Just because I'm trying to figure out what it should be. Mm-hmm. Um, some readers think that there is this finished book in your head and then all you have to do is sit down and get it out. Like uh, I, I'm a man groping around in the dark, you know, and I keep grabbing some things that are spongy and disgusting and I drop them and then I <laughs> grab other things that are interesting and, and I, I carry them along. That's, that's what writing a book is for me. Very interesting. Are you trying to pursue any sort of publication deal or anything like that? Or are you going to stick with self pub? <sighs> that's so I have an agent now. Which is which is novel for me. That's that's you know I I've never had an agent before. Um, nice guy, but the truth is, I I have to sell so many copies on my own before a publishing house will take any interest in me. Hmm. Um, you know I, I was told that The Martian uh, first sold thirty thousand copies before a publisher would look at it, and they thought that it was a risky proposition even after selling thirty thousand copies because probably the interest in this project had been exhausted. Now we all know with hindsight that that was not the case at all. Right. But that's how timid I think publishers are. I, I like the stories I want to write. I'm not, I, I just, I'm not one of those kind of people who can, I'm not an entertainer. You know what I mean? Like the people who can compromise and give people what they want. And that's not me. So I'm going to write the books I want to write. If publishers want to publish them, great. If um, I have to self-publish them, fine. You know, if I have to wash dishes, who cares? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not in it for the money. You know, so it's, it's, it's yeah, I'm just having a good time. I used to actually work at a chicken factory. And oh, that's my one God, that's got to be the worst job in the world. <laughs> no, no, it's great. It's great for thinking of ideas. Because it's so mindless, you're just the whole day, you're just kind of sitting there doing the same repetitive action. Mm-hmm. So for me, that was great for like coming up with ideas. It's like just chickens would pass me by all day and, oh, yeah, I could write that story. And then, and then, and then the chickens <laughs> just become this blur of meat, Feather and- feathers and <laughs> blood. And so I would, recom- I would recommend a chicken factory. Well, look into that. So we definitely have to med- mention your artwork while we are here because you are a pretty uh, solid artist. You've been posting some uh, time lapse videos uh, on your uh, website, uh, on your Facebook, of you uh, doing these illustrious chalkboard illustrations. Tell us a little bit about your artwork that you've been doing lately. Sure. Um, I for about five years between the ages of like twenty one and twenty six, I was convinced I was going to be a comic book artist. I was convinced that was my calling. I read all the graphic novels. I bought the, the drafting board. I bought like the ink pots and the nibs and the brushes. 
I was going to be an artist. I, I drew a comic strip for a local uh, magazine in Richmond, Virginia, which nobody much liked, but I did it. And, you know, I, I submitted drafts of scripts and concept art to the big comic uh, industry, the comic uh, uh, publishers. Uh, I, I, was, I was sure. Um, and then one day I woke up and I said, you know what? This comic book thing is for losers. I want to be a poet. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what an awakening. Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> so, you know, the older I get, I'm like, you know, who cares, man? I like drawing. It's fun. So mm-hmm. when I moved into a, a house, the first house I'd ever owned, uh, and I had in my own office, I decided to paint uh, one of the walls black. That was just something I wanted to do as a child, uh, you know, paint a wall black. But I wanted it to be matte black. So I was like, well, I should use some chalkboard paint. And so I threw that up. And uh, then once you look at a black wall, it's only a matter of want to draw on it. I mean, they just they call to you. So I got, you know, a 99 cent pack of chalk at the grocery store and started scribbling. And then I'm like, oh, no, I'm drawing again. I had <laughs> sworn this off. Um, so, yeah. That's like, it's, it's just some way to kind of when you get stuck with when I get stuck with a scene with a with a plot point and I'm frustrated. I don't like just to sit down and wallow in it. I need to kind of like you're saying watch. Uh, so I'm getting the chalk and I'm I'm you know drawn to try to get the ideas out to to kind of stir the imagination. Um, so yeah, I mean that's that's why I do it. It's also fun to draw your own characters. I mean you know I'm not I'm not always happy with them, but it's fun to try to give it a shot to you know, bring out of the, the page, these, these characters. Um, so that's, that's pretty much the idea. It's, it's, it's a really deep concept. I'm, I'm a conceptual artist. <laughs> folks can check out samples of that, uh, at your website at www.thebooksofbabble.com. Uh, folks wanted to see some of your drawings. Do you plan on, uh, incorporating any of those illustrations into like future versions of the books? Uh, the hardcover of Sinless Sins is out. And in the front of that is a map of the lower ringdoms of the Tower of Babel that I drew, which I'm pretty happy with. But that was not chalk. That was pen and ink. Mm-hmm. Um, the Arm of the Sphinx hardcover is going to have a diagram of the ship that they are on, uh, which is called the Stone Cloud. And I've drawn that, and I'm working with um, a designer, Ian, <laughs> my ancient friend, to get that <laughs> ready for the hardcover of Arm of the Sphinx. I would love to someday get those illustrations into the books, but, you know, it's – I don't know. If I, I, I'll see if I can figure it out. I would like to. I would like to. I'm not there yet. And the artwork on your uh, books, book covers are pretty pretty solid, very impressive, um, appealing to the eye. I mean, you look at it, and you're like, this looks like a cool fucking book. Uh, for, for both those covers. Who did your cover art? Ian. Yeah. Ian, okay. The same guy that I started writing the quest for Mortar Angus with, you know, when we were 12, we've, we've always stayed friends. Uh, he is a graphic designer um, professionally. He's a freelance guy. Um, and he very generously drew these, these covers for me. Um, he, uh, his last name is Lino, by the way, Ian Lino. I should probably say that because I'm like, everybody knows Ian. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Uh, yeah, Ian Lino, he's a great artist. When we started talking about the covers, we wanted something that was more iconic, that harkened to the 1960s sort of pulp um, science fiction and fantasy novels um, before everything just became abs and daggers. You know, like that, that's mm. we wanted something that was more design heavy and graphic. And so that's that's what the the covers came out of. Um, but he you know, that, that's not his only style. He has a lot of different styles that he uses. 
Uh, I think if I ever did take the works to a publisher, uh, we'd just put top hats and corsets and airships in the front, you know, whatever. <laughs> and then book four, abs and daggers. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'd read it. I'd re- If I saw a book that was just like abs and then just like a shitload of daggers laying <laughs> on top of it or stabbed, stabbed into that abs, <laughs> into the go. little creases, I would uh-huh. probably buy it. I'm, I'm really glad that that trend is sort of, you know, dwindling. Yeah. Yeah. So when you when you release abs and daggers, you know, you'll, <laughs> you'll, you'll get that market. That's right. It'll be retro. <laughs> so no doubt uh, the fantasy community is um, chimed in and said, hey, uh, Sinlin the Sins and Arm of the Sphinx are great books. So definitely um, word of mouth has helped propel you forward. And I think it's also helped, you know, get you on the podcast today because no doubt Buzz has uh, gotten our attention. And we're definitely glad to get you on the show today to, to chat about this stuff. But uh, our fantasy is definitely, I think, uh, a hub on the internet. I mean, we had them on the show to talk about the website itself. But how would you say our fantasy is kind of factored into your growth and development as an author? Our fantasy is the first online community that I've engaged with that I have felt really welcomed by. And that sounds weird, but I, I feel like, you know, most of my interactions with people online is there's always that kind of caginess to it where, you know, you're kind of suspicious of their responses and it's sort of like talking to the air or talking to yourself. But like our fantasy is a community and uh, I, I find that to be really helpful because self-publishing and writing is lonely work and it's it's isolating work and so it's nice to be able to go to a community like our our fantasy and you know have conversations about other people's works and hear what people think of what you're doing um get ideas for future projects meet like-minded readers meet authors who are working on their own projects um and and self-publishers who are working on their own books uh that it's it's kind of unique at least um in my experience, the internet, um, a unique community. Um, without them, uh, doubtlessly, uh, without them and Mark Lawrence, I, I would be, you know, scrubbing commodes and watching the chickens pass and you know, coming up with the next failed idea. So I'm, I'm very grateful. You did the uh, writer of the day. You've uh, done a couple of uh, our fantasy AMAs as well. Lots of uh, activity on the most recent one that you had. Um, so yeah, lots of, uh, attention there and it's a pretty great community and, uh, that's reddit.com slash r slash fantasy again for folks who haven't got a chance to head over there and join the hundred thousand plus subscribers on that fantasy forum. Definitely lots of good stuff over there. Um, any other things that you're doing right now to kind of, uh, promote or market yourself online? Uh, not so much. Oh, well, online, um, the, hmm. or Man, not I, online. I mean, I, just, or, I know you've been doing some conventions as well. Yeah, I, the conventions for me, uh, I do like comic conventions, uh, are some of the most rewarding engagements of, of readers that I do. It's sort of old fashioned, uh, in its sort of manner of sale. I mean, it's sort of odd just to stand at a table in front of your books and, and look at people and be like, you want to buy my book? You want to, you want to talk about my book? I mean, so it's a little odd, but if you can get past that, it's really rewarding. Um, so I just got back from a con in Lexington this last week. Um, where I got to meet tons of, of interesting people, um, many of them like just writers, uh, who were interested in hearing what I was doing. Uh, you know, I got to look them in the eye and, and, and sign their books. And it, it's just, if there are self publishers out there wondering, is it worth doing a convention? The answer is yes. But you have to take your A game. There's no like skulking at the table, putting your head down and hoping people come over there and like say, hey, you look special. 
<laughs> what are you working on there? You know, you gotta log that book, man. You gotta stand up, look people in the eye. That's not my favorite thing. I, I my, I'm, I'm more of a, you know, introspective, reclusive kind of person. I'm, I'm not an extrovert. Uh, so it takes everything that I have to, to stand there and, and, and engage the public. But man, it's so rewarding to have people come back the next year and say, I loved your book. Can I get the next one? I told all my friends, you know, that's, it's, it's, it's wonderful. Do you give them a hug if they do that? <laughs> I, I, I oh, touch the people. I don't know. Maybe a high five. High five. Okay. <laughs> fist bump. Yeah, fist bump. I know. I, 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 I'll take pictures with them uh, and and look awkward in my way. That's sort of my thing. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, folks can head over to uh, Amazon right now. We've got the link in the show notes if people want to pick up a copy of Send Them the Sins or Arm of the Sphinx. And then book three is TBD, some, maybe sometime this year or next year, I presume? That's right, yeah. Okay, and then four years to get book four finished up, so that would be <laughs> 2021-ish for the series I, to I, wrap up. I will, I will pick up the pace. <laughs> um, do you have any ideas for the title of book three yet, or are you still bouncing things around? I, I think that I've landed on the title for book three. It's going to be The Hod King. Cool. Yeah. Excellent. Well... Josiah Boncroft, it's been a delight to get you on the show today, and hopefully folks are a little bit excited about uh, picking up the series. We recommend it, and it's been great to get you on and uh, spread the word about the awesome things that you've got going on. Uh, any con appearances coming up in the next uh, couple of months? Uh, not till Tampa this summer. Okay. Summertime, Tampa, Florida. Mm-hmm. Folks can come say hello, and www.thebooksofbabble.com is your website, and then folks can find you on Twitter at the Books of Babel, and then you're on Facebook too as well, right? That's right. You can check us out at thegrimtidingspodcast.com. That's right. We're totally legit now. We have a web domain, so you can drop by the website. We have a cool new blog post from Philip Overby. Tell us about that new uh, blog, blog post that you just put up about a week ago there, Phil. Hey, yeah, I'll tell you all about it. <laughs> Which one are we talking about? Grimspirations. Oh, yeah, let me tell you all about it. Grimspirations. <laughs> So Grimspirations is one of our uh, little projects where we talk about different uh, writers that have inspired us either to read more or write more or be artistic in some fashion. And my latest blog post is related to how Joe Abercrombie and Desperate Housewives inspired me to write more episodic, episodically. Um it's a strange connection of Joe Abercrombie and Desperate Housewives, but it's just how I was feeling. So that's <laughs> that's what we got there. And we're going to continue to put new content up on the website. So keep an eye out for various interviews and more inspirations, maybe from other people other than just me. So uh, we're going to slowly build up this murder machine and <laughs> get it rolling. Abs and daggers everywhere. Abs and fucking daggers. <laughs> and you can always hit us up on Twitter at GrimDarkFiction or our Facebook page um, at the Grim Tidings Podcast. So be sure to drop by and say hello. Uh, we have a fan of the week. This week is Sam McKenna from Scurvy Inc. Thanks again, Sam, for being awesome and uh, supporting the show. We need us some very cool T-shirts um, as well over at Scurvy Inc. So thanks again, Sam, for supporting the show. And blog of the week goes to... Bookworm Blues by the amazing Sarah Chorn, one of the coolest reviewers on the internet. She does amazing work in the community, reads and reviews a ton of tons of books, and I think she loved the crap out of Send on the Sins. 
by the way. Um, but yeah, bookwormblues.net is the website to check out. Blog of the week goes to Sarah Chorn and, uh, be sure to check that out and add it to your favorites. Be sure to drop by our Facebook group, Grimdark Fiction Readers and Writers, nearly 2,800 members in the, in the Facebook group where me and Phil first came together. I don't know if folks knew that, but that's, that's where me and Phil met. And we've never even met in real person. That's, we never, we've never met in real person. IRL. (laughs) Never. And we may never, you may never be back to America and I may never go to Japan. And well, I'm definitely never coming back to America. I've already (laughs) decided that. No, just kidding. Uh, I'll, I'll come back once a year. So, all right. Maybe, maybe one of these times I'll crash into you. <laughs> and upcoming guests, we've got Scott Odin, author on the books coming up. Peter Newman going to be dropping by again. And then Ben Galley, another cool self-published author is slated to be on the show as well. So plenty of great Grim Tidings podcast content to come your way. Thanks again for everybody who subscribes and checks out the show and be sure to drop by the Grim Tidings podcast.com for forthcoming blog posts and then philip any uh news in the splatter elf universe or any releases coming up for you uh, i'm working on three different things right now Shit. Uh, splatter elf universe and i haven't decided which which one is going to be released first but i do have uh, things going so if anyone wants to bring me out of my uh suffering then go buy my splatter elf stuff Cheap plug. Uh, Fuck yeah. (laughs) Squeeze it in there. Awesome. Thanks again for listening to this edition of the Grim Tidings Podcast. Special thanks to Josiah Bancroft and Philip Overeem. Thanks again for joining me on the show today. Until next time, stay grim, stay dark, stay true. Rock and roll. Abs and daggers. Unicorns. Bye-bye. And sunshine. Bye-bye.